we've been going through the Beatitudes, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're going to continue in that, one of those passages, salt and light, that I think most of us should be familiar with, um, but like we talk about in our Bible studies, and whenever you ask me about what a passage of Scripture means, I'm always going to point you to the context. If you haven't joined us in our Ephesian study, hint, hint, you should. Uh, it's, it's really helpful to walk through a text and know why things are said in a certain order in a particular place. So we finished with the Beatitudes last week, and it kind of seems like an awkward transition, talking about persecution into salt and light. What Jesus is doing here is after establishing who the Christian is and what their characteristics they have, how, how they should be manifested in the Christian, now he's going to talk about how those characteristics are manifested in the world. So Jesus is actually laying a foundation in the Beatitudes for what is to come. Uh, from the general, the blessed are you, or excuse me, blessed are, uh, open-ended, to the specific, you are salt and light. So it's a matter of becoming what we are. In Christ, we have this new, ni- this new life, this newness of life, this characteristic of salt and light. It's becoming what we already are, what Christ has made possible for us, but how that is fleshed out in the world. Um, his salt and light are in contrast to the decay and the darkness that exists without salt and light. And so we're going to see that in the, this morning, what it looks like to be in the world, uh, but not like the world. As we walk around as setting this contrast in our lives to what the rest of the world proclaims, the gospel of the world is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is not a subtle difference for those who are in Christ and those who are in the world, but a drastic difference. I hope we see that this morning, because salt and light is one of those passages where we could read through, we all think we know it, we could, many of us could say it out out of memory, and we could close this thing up nice and neat and be done quickly. Uh, But you guys know better than that, and there's so much here, and we're going to spend our entire time on four verses, and uh, there's a richness there, and we could actually spend more time on it. But let's pray, I'm going to read through the passage, and then we'll walk through it together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that you are a mighty fortress, that we can run to you as our refuge, that you are our safety, you are our shield, you are the Father of lights, sending the light of the world into this world that you may dwell within us, for us to be your light until you return. And that I pray that that would energize us and encourage us of who we are in Christ and what our role is in this world. So as we open your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would guide me, the Holy Spirit would teach and convict us to be conformed to your image according to your word. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start uh, Matthew chapter 3. Verse 13, uh, if you have your outlines, you can, you can pull those out, and the outline's going to walk through what I'm, what I'm talking about here. Um, and I'm going to start reading in 13, we're going to finish in 16. 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. 
A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. So, who is the you? The who? It's the same blessed ones that we went through in the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those are the salt of the earth. So, before we get into the passage, um, for those history nerds out there like me, I want to go through uh, some of the things I found on salt. It's fascinating. Um, if you start researching salt, you could spend weeks. It's been so influential and so used. You know, we take it for granted because it's on every one of our kitchen tables. Uh, but looking at salt's role throughout history, you can see why Jesus uses this. It's, it, it's fascinating. Um, it's always been a prized commodity. You know, now it's, it's kind of cheaper. We have iodized table salt, but we also have salts that are hundreds of dollars an ounce. Um, but especially in ancient times, salt was so valuable. Uh, so much so that salt in many cultures is still used as currency. Uh, but throughout a lot of history, soldiers would be paid in salt, uh, property was bought in salt, uh, slaves were bought with salt. And actually our word salary comes from salt. Because if you were, were, were paid in salt, that was your salary. It's the same base root word of, of sal, S-A-L. Um, also, if you worked and you weren't uh, doing your responsibilities the way you should, or if you were a slave and you were sold and uh, you weren't what you what they thought you were going to be, you weren't worth your salt. Uh, and so those things uh, give us a, a glimpse of to what the ancient world uh, thought about salt. Um, but for us, salt has many uses, and I wasn't aware of all the uses uh, that, that we have. I mean, salt covers three basic categories. It purifies, it cleanses, and it heals. And there are literally thousands of uses for salt today. Like some of the ones I found that I just thought were interesting. Uh, you know that smell that you get in your coffee pot after hundreds of uses? Uh, uh, a solution of hot salt water running it through there will actually get rid of the coffee smell, which I didn't realize. You can even kill weeds with salt water. Um, this was interesting to me. If you put an egg into a salt water solution, a fresh egg sinks but an old spoiled egg will float to the top. So next time you want to know if you need to throw your eggs out or not, um, the old one floats, the good one sinks, and uh, I could use that many times. Um, adding salt to laundry for new clothes helps them hold their, their color. Your, your towels will keep their color longer if you add salt to your, uh, to your laundry. Didn't realize that. Um, salt can heal cuts. I mean, we know that when we go swimming in the ocean, the salt water helps to heal. But it also helps for mosquito bites. The itch of mosquito bites, a, 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 a salt solution with a little bit of water and you rub it on a mosquito bite will help with itching. Uh, one thing that's interesting to me as well is that a quick salt water bath helps to keep cut fruit and lettuce from turning brown and spoiling. Um, so I thought that was interesting. That's actually where our word salad came from. Because the Romans would put salt on, on greens, and that's where we get salad. Um, where we're from, the closest biggest, where I grew up, the closest uh, big city is Syracuse. And Syracuse was the salt city. 
Uh, there was a great salt trade that, that went through that part of the country, and Syracuse was the hub for it. Um, but you know, coming back down to where we are in this passage, salt is actually the root word, the same root word of salvation. Because in, in Latin, um, salt means, it, it, the, the root is to save. And so our word salvation comes from the same root of salt. If you're Italian and you grew up in my house, sauce and sausage also come from salt as well. Same root word. We get a little more excited about that than salvation. Sorry. Um, but the use of salvation, I thought it was interesting when I looked it up and kind of sad. If you look at the use of salvation in the past 200 years, uh, it was used three times as much in the 1800s as it is today. So our culture is not really concerned with salvation. It's not something we talk about often, which is sad. So how does salt save things? Well, it draws water out of cells by a process called osmosis. And don't ask me to explain that because I read it three times and I still can't explain it. Um, But basically, salt works by drying out food. It takes out moisture where bacteria and mold and fungus can grow. And that's how it preserves food. So when Jesus says we are the salt of the earth, our role is one of preservation. Because just like the Holy Spirit preserves us, The Holy Spirit in us preserves the world around us. Uh, We are salt to an unsavory world. We add flavor and preservation to a world that is is dying. I mean, everything is in a different different place in entropy. In entropy, yes. Um, So I was thinking about it this week. Like, what would a world look like without salt? Without the Christian influence, what would our world look like? You ever thought about that? If the Lord wasn't working within the lives of believers and we weren't working within the life of the world, unchecked decay, unchecked darkness, what would our world look like? Well, Jesus speaks to that here because he said, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What does he mean by saltiness? When they say lost its taste here, the Greek is literally to be made foolish, to be made useless. If salt is made useless, how shall its saltiness be restored? The Greek word for saltiness um, is actually more accurately described as being made fresh or sound. We went through the book of Titus. Paul mentions sound very often, and we know that that means healthy. So saltiness is making something sound or healthy, making it fresh as opposed to being foolish or useless. Um, We talk about losing saltiness, and we don't really understand that, because our salt is just salt. But in the Dead Sea area, the the salt was filled with impurities. And if it was not kept properly, if it was mixed with water, if it got around humidity, it would spoil. It would not have any benefits anymore. And salt has no secondary uses. So if we don't eat a banana and it goes bad, we throw it in the compost, things will grow out of it. If salt loses its saltiness, it has no other uses. It is to be thrown away and to be trampled underfoot. So salt, keeping its purity, is so important to its usefulness. Otherwise, it has no function. You know, salt without saltiness is like Confederate currency. And you think after the Civil War, you had two nations who printed their own money. And the South lost, they still had that money. What happened to it? It wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. Salt without saltiness is that same value. 
you can't spend money that doesn't have a nation. You can't use something that doesn't perform its function anymore. So when we think about us having saltiness, what does the saltiness of a Christian look like? How do we make things sound? You know, think about the influence of biblical wisdom in our culture. I mean, from the very beginning of Genesis, the Bible proclaims the Imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God. Because mankind is made in the image of God, which no other system, philosophical or religious, can explain, life has value. We believe in the sanctity of life. We believe that every person is made in the image of God, and so we don't just indiscriminately kill people. We don't just indiscriminately take lives if they're inconvenient for us. I mean, think about what the world would look like without a simple framework of the Ten Commandments. There's a reason why they used to be in every courthouse. Wanted to, we wanted a reminder that we should honor our father and mother. We should not kill or steal or covet someone else. These basic things that we take for granted, those are biblical influences. That is what the Christian is to be to the culture. And then we've just finished the Beatitudes, which are essentially the eight commandments of the New Testament, where Jesus takes it a step further and talks about the heart of the believer. Not someone who is keeping laws to please God, but someone who God was pleased with and the outpouring of what God did in their lives becomes meekness, becomes purity, becomes peace. So those influences, I mean, think about what they've done to the world around us. I mean, the world reaps the benefits when we look like Christ. The awakenings and the reformations throughout history have brought not only prosperity, but peace and blessing. I mean, we are the benefit beneficiaries of the great awakening in this country. And the gospel was proclaimed in every city. It led to our revolution and us being founded with documents that point to a creator. I mean, that was, that was the fruit of the spread of the gospel. And we see that throughout history. The abolition movement. It was Christians who said no people have value regardless of the color of their skin. Society is benefited, culture is benefited from us being salt. It's a high charge to be the salt of the earth. And what would the world look like on the other side if it was thoroughly salted? If all the Christians wore that banner of being salt in the world? The word that's used here is very specific. The word for salt of the earth and light of the world. Earth and world are two different terms. Salt is specific to the actual firmament, the actual ground. So this planet, this ground that we're on, what would it look like if we were all salt? We won't see it as we are now, but we will see it when Christ comes again. What full saltiness looks like is when Christ comes and makes things sound, makes things whole again, when things are healthy and as they should be. That is a fully salted world, and that we have to look forward to in Christ. So we've seen salt. Now let's look at light. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. I want to get into light a little bit, uh, but I kind of want to set context here. Um, Who, again, are the light? You. The same people who are the salt. The same people who are the blessed ones in the Beatitudes. It's an interesting uh, choice of word here. I think we kind of use it because we always have. Uh, city on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, 
Florida, we only have hills or whatever they are, bumps. Uh, the word is actually the word for mountain. A city on a mountain cannot be hidden. I mean, when you think about the ancient context, if you put your city somewhere, you wanted to be able to see all around. You wanted a military advantage. You wanted to be, uh, you wanted to survey the land around you. You wanted to be an outpost. You wanted to be a, a beacon for all people coming. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's who Christians are to be on full display, a city on a mountain, a beacon, a lighthouse. Uh, I want to read a story because I felt like retelling it, but I'm not that great of a storyteller. Um, I'm going to keep quoting from books that I I love. Uh, John MacArthur has this great book called Nothing But the Truth. Uh, It's a simple book. It gives what we believe about the gospel and what it should mean for our lives to go out from there. He tells this great story of um, what a beacon looks like, a city on a hill in a dark world, and how that can change. So uh, I want you to listen to this and then see if this brings any pictures to mind. An unknown author wrote that on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks were frequent, frequent, there once existed a little life-saving station. The building was just a hut. There was only one boat. But the few devoted volunteers kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for their safety, they went out day and night, tirelessly rescuing the lost. Many lives were saved, along with others, um, excuse me, many lives were saved and the station became famous. Some of those who were saved, along with others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with this station. They gave time, money, and effort to support its work. They bought new boats, they trained new crews, and the life-saving station grew. Some of those who volunteered at the station soon became upset that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put in better furniture in a new, larger building. As a result, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for all its volunteers. They decorated it exquisitely and began to use it as a club and even charge membership dues. Because fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif motif still prevailed in the club's emblems and stationery. However, there was a a symbolic lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. Because these survivors were dirty and sick, they soon messed up the beautiful new club. So the property committee immediately had uh, a shower built outside of the clubhouse so the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the the life-saving activities altogether because they thought it was a hindrance and unpleasant to the normal social life of the club. Other members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, the club was still a life-saving station. But those members were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of various people in shipwrecks in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which they did. As the years went by, the new station gradually faced the same problems, and another one experienced it. 
it too evolved into a club, and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. The few members who remained dedicated to saving lives founded yet another life-saving station. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit the coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent, but most of the people drown. Sound like anything? Sound like the church in America a little bit? We had a conversation this week about why aren't people tending churches the way, why aren't things the way that they used to be? You know, I will say that the, the church no longer wants to be a city on a hill, no longer wants to be a beacon, but it wants to be a comfortable club. Don't mess up the carpet. Don't say anything uncomfortable. Don't uh, mess with our flow of things. If you want to go save people, if you want to get involved in people's lives, go do that somewhere else. And a lot of our churches, sadly, have become that. Uh, that story, I read this book several years ago, and it's always stuck with me. Um, being put in a position to lead a church, I never want to be that church. Sadly, there are plenty of those. It's a club for those who want to be comfortable, those who are sick and need help, need saving, need the gospel, are left outside in the cold. Because we see Philippians 2, 14 through 15, that we are to shine as light in a crooked generation. That's Paul's charge to the church, light in a crooked generation, a dark generation. We are to stand in contrast to the darkness that's outside, not to insulate ourselves from it. So let's talk about light. We spent some time on salt. I found so much in, in, in light, um, especially within creation. And what light does two things. It illumines and it enlightens. When it illuminates, we get brightness and we get heat. And we use the term light to talk about uh, information and understanding shining on someone. And so first we're going to look at illumination. You know, the, the ancients, uh, who we would call ancients, uh, biblical times, they didn't have this distinction between science and religion like, like, like we do now. You know, we have this false distinction that I either trust science or I trust Bible, uh, the, the, the Bible, and I don't want to hear anything about science. Well, God is a God of truth, and all truth comes from God, and science will ultimately bring glory to God because there is only one source of truth. And when science discovers something, it will always point us to God because He is the source and creator of all things. You know, the ancients, when they saw a, cr a cloud rolling in, that is the presence of God. Here comes God. Everything was from God. The rain was from God. The sun was from God. There was no distinction uh, between scientific processes. But of course, man in his arrogance, when he starts to learn and become scientific, he thinks that things he discovers are his in the first place. And we're just tapping into what has been there all along. So, for the science nerds of you out there who may know this, I, I learned a lot. So I want to share a couple things with you. Um, light waves, like radio waves, heat signals, and x-rays are all electromagnetic radiation. And what they do is they transmit energy and, and they can carry information across vast reaches, even dark spaces. So light can travel where nothing else can travel. Light can travel across darkness. And if we're to be light in the world, we are the thing that travels across darkness. Just like we see in creation, which we'll see in just a moment. Another thing that was interesting to me, uh, we live every day with the force of gravity on us. But gravity 
is 42, uh, what's the, what's the uh, term here? It's orders of magnitude weaker than light. So 10 to the negative 42nd power is gravity compared to light. Light has so much more magnitude than gravity. And that powerful um, energy over the uh, barrenness is that much stronger than gravity. Uh, what I found out was really interesting was that the first three verses of Genesis express all of the scientific classifications for our universe. All aspects of creation are addressed in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Time, space, matter, and energy. In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. And a little later on, God says, let there be light, energy. Time, space, matter, energy, all present in creation. Science took us thousands of years to figure that out. The only creation story that has ever existed that explains all the elements of our universe is found in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And it's interesting that the energy that God used to create the world, he's using to recreate people. The same spirit that hovered over the waters transforms lives. And that energy, that light that was present at the beginning of creation came down with the sun and is now in us. Also, what I found fascinating is that plants require three things to grow. You botanists out there, sunlight, water, and minerals in the soil. In the first chapter of Genesis, in the first 11 verses, we, we see those things in order. Verse 3, he uh, creates light. Verse 6, water. Verse 9, soil. And then God created plant life. So God created the perfect environment for plants to grow before he created the plants themselves. That is our God. We fast forward to Job 38, which is probably the, the first book written in the Bible. Um, but in our context, it's a little further on. In chapter 38, Job is hearing this lecture from God, and God mentions light three times in Job 38. Verse 19, he says, where is the way to the dwelling of the light? Now think about if you have no scientific experience and you're, and you're hearing a statement like the dwelling of the light. Where does light dwell? Does light have a dwelling place and is there a way to it? Now, it took us again thousands of years to discover that light travels at 186,000 miles per hour and it actually has a way. It actually travels in a direction. God told Job that thousands of years before science ever stumbles upon it. So in addition to illumination, light is, offers enlightenment. So we use the, the, the term light to transmit information and understanding. You've been enlightened. God, God also says to Job in verse 35 of chapter 38, Can you send lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Can light be sent? Well, radio waves can be sent, and they travel at the speed of light. That's why we can have wireless communications across the globe. So God was sending lightning and telling Job this back in chapter 38, and we discover this, uh, what, 
1864, it was the first time a British scientist, James Clerk Maxwell, discovered, discovered that light waves and radio waves were two forms of the same thing. It's interesting, though, with all the advances in technology, it took us eight, 9,000 years to determine and tap into what has been there all along, what God told Job in the simple language of the Old Testament. That light has a way, I send it, I know where it comes from, I know where it's going. And now we use it to make phone calls and to send emails. So we're going to fast forward a little bit, um, or rewind, however you want to look at it, uh, to Jesus, where he says in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, enlightenment is not an intellectual problem, which is what we think it is. We need, we need more information. We need more understanding. Jesus tells us that enlightenment is a darkness problem. We don't need more understanding. We need less darkness. We need light. You know, we all know John 3.16. Love the verse. Put up baseball games, put on bumper stickers. But if you read a little bit further, Jesus tells you why he came into the earth. If you would, turn to John chapter 3 for me. Jesus came to earth not for an information problem, for a darkness problem. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Here's where Jesus gets specific. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Interesting that probably the most popular verse in all of Christian culture is a great rallying cry for believers. Just a few verses later, Jesus explained why it was necessary, because the world loves darkness. The world hates the light. We saw that in the end of the Beatitudes, that persecution will, will come to those who proclaim the light. I was thinking about this this week, and something very interesting, that you know, we have that light. We can be the light of the world because of Christ. But we are only the light because the light no longer walks on this earth. The light came, declared the kingdom. He died for the sins of those who would declare his name, rose again, and ascended into heaven. Jesus said, it's better that I might go. I'll send my spirit within you and he will teach you all things. But we now bear the light that our Savior came to display to the world. Our Savior no longer walks on this earth, but we do as his light. It's this, this supernatural current system of light coming from the Father of lights to the light of the world and him bestowing us as his light, as his ambassadors in the midst of a dark world. We see this consistent throughout all of Scripture. We go all the way to the end of the Bible into Revelation 21. When Christ's new kingdom comes, there's no light source. It has no need for a sun or a moon. 
because the glory of God is its light and the lamb is its lamp. We see it again in Revelation 22. This theme of light is present in creation and it's present in consummation. Our God is light. That light is consistent throughout all of Scripture. And until things are consummated in Christ's kingdom, when he becomes the lamp of the world, we are to bear his light until that day. And it is, back to Matthew, verse 15, Jesus talks about something that was common to them. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Our modern context of a, of a lamp is not what they're talking about here. I've actually held one in my hand. Uh, these, they're little ceramic bowls that you would, you would put um, lamp oil into, probably about that big. And it's more like a candle than would be a, a lamp. And it's, it's very small. It has a very small flame. Um, but if you wanted light in a time where there was no electricity, uh, you would put your only little source of light in the middle of the room. Otherwise, you could not see anything. You would stumble around. I mean, we've all gotten up in the middle of the night, and before we can fumble our way to the light switch, just kick something on the floor and stumble, we know what darkness does to our frail eyes. Jesus talks about us being that lamp, being set on a, a stand. You know, it was one of our our favorite verses, right? You don't put your light under a bushel. And we, we, we've, we've all heard that, you know, shine your, your light for the world to see. Um, but it's not just a cute saying of, hey, don't hide the gifts that God has given you. No, we live in a dark world and we are that light. Without us, it, we're just a dark room. The world is stumbling around with no direction, no clarity. The Holy Spirit in us is preserving the world, salt and light. And it's a beautiful picture of what God is doing. I mean, think about us being a lamp to a dark world. I mean, God chose to use us. Jesus could have walked around on this earth for 2,000 years and been the only light. But the Father and the Son dwell within us so that we can become that light. And in the same way, Verse 16, let your light shine before others. These connecting words in the Greek are so important. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The light we possess is to be shined for the world. Our love for the Lord, our love for his commandments, and our love for one another are our apologetics to the world. We talked about this a little bit last week. The, the Greek word just simply means defense. The light in us, the light we show to one another, our love of the Lord is our defense for who we are. Our defense for his transformation of our lives. And it's the Beatitudes, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of our salvation on full display. The light of the world. Our good works, not to approve Excuse me, not to seek the approval of a God who we can only please by our good works, but because of the approval of a God who has purified us for good works. Those good works that come out of salvation, as we saw in the Beatitudes, are the salt that preserves the world, are the light that shines in the darkness. 
we are to act in such a way that people say, who are they? What is different about this person? There is a light about them. There is something different about them. We are to, are to confuse the things of the world that they think are wisdom that we know are foolish. Not by our arrogance, not by our pride, not by our accomplishments, but by our good works, by our salt and our light, by works that don't contradict our words, but support them. To be people who are founded in sound doctrine, but also in right living, in love toward our Lord, in love toward one another, so that our works agree with our words and our Father is glorified. So when we see ourselves as light and ambassadors of Christ, the Father is glorified. So how do we conclude this morning? What are the two things we learn about salt and light? Or we learn about salt. Salt purifies, um, heals, or cleans, or preserves. And we're to be that. And kind of the role of a nurse. We are not the physician, but we attend to the work of the physician. We are in this world of dying people who are desperate and discouraged and need comfort. They need the good news of the gospel. We are the nurse working on behalf of the physician. Light, it illumines and it enlightens. You know, we are not the source and we're not the end, but we're the guide. And we walk in this world, the word of the Lord is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Rooted in God's word, we can walk on a clear path. We don't stumble in the darkness like the world does. We are a guide to a lost and stumbling world. We are the tools that our Father uses. Because the Father of lights and His Son, the light of the world, dwell within us. That is who we are as believers. And how ridiculous is it That God, the God of light, the creator of all things, created with light at the beginning, sent his son as light. Most of us in the church, myself included, would rather hide our light and be comfortable and not be a light in the midst of darkness, not be a contrast to the world. How ridiculous is it? The son of God came down from heaven as light to die for our darkness And we're content to live in darkness most of our days, living just like the world, living a lot of ways like the world. And none of us are immune to it. We go through our days content with the same things the rest of the world is content with. But salt and decay are two very different things. And light and darkness are two very different things. And we're to look that different from the world. Because... We are people called to be salt and light. We are people called by the creator of the universe under the king of kings to be his ambassadors, to be his heralds to the world. Salt and light. Because until he comes again, he's using us as his salt and his light in this world. But he gets the glory for our obedience and our faithfulness. Let's be salt and light to a world that is decaying and dying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is beyond our grasp how you work. How you take something as simple that we take for granted like salt 
and like light and just cut to the core of who we are. That you are so amazing, so majestic, so powerful, sovereign over all things. Yet you use us as salt, something, something so simple, yet so vital to life. And that you are the blinding sun that we can't even look at. We can't even gaze upon your glory, but you've sent your light within us to be a light within the world. How amazing it is how you work. Amazing it is what you've done in our lives. Lord, I pray that we walk away from here encouraged and energized to be your ambassadors, to be your heralds to proclaim your gospel to the nations, to proclaim the good news that darkness has not won, but light has won. And that light will banish all darkness one day, and we will be there together and celebrate with Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect harmony. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.